Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Rom-Crime listeners. While we're taking this tiny little break to prepare for Rom-Crime Season 3, we wanted to give you a taste of some of our Patreon content, starting with our coverage of HBO's I'll Be Gone in the Dark docuseries. Spoiler alert, we now have a shrine of Michelle McNamara in our booth. Love you guys. Enjoy! everyone. I'm Vanya. I'm the Rom. Hi, Vanya. I'm Avrin, and I'm the crime. And this is Rom Crime. <laughs> this is our true crime comedy podcast that has romantic discoveries. 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 Hey, guys, thanks for joining. Woo! Woohoo! Hi, Patreons. So our first of a six-part series here. Yes, exclusively for you. So we're doing the first episode of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is a six-part docuseries on HBO that is based off of the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark, written by the late author Michelle McNamara. So we're doing the first episode on HBO, which is called Murder Habit. Which I love. Definitely we're going to talk about some disturbing things just to get that out of the way. A lot of bit it- of... Uh, sexual assaults yeah so if that upsets you i'm so sorry patreons dm us and let us know we'll try and find some fun more fun content for you that is not so aggressive but i kind of assume that if you have joined us you are fine with it okay but no i love i love this episode because it does seem like such a love story to just true crime absolutely you know like at home sleuthing mm-hmm. what? that's hard citizen for citizen detectives which I feel like if you're somebody who loves true crime, then you're probably somebody that's watched uh, Unsolved Mysteries and thought, I could figure that out or read about something and been like, I bet you I could I could solve that. I know I think that shit all the time. I do think why this is such a special docuseries for the genre is because as much as it is an amazing story, not just about Michelle McNamara, but also about what she accomplished within the genre... But it's really a love letter, if you can call it that, to those of us who have this deep passion and interest in true crime, in justice for victims, in putting a name to a faceless monster and taking away their power and being like, screw you, you cowardly, pathetic loser that wreaked all this havoc. And I just love her so much. And Murder Habit, when I saw that, when I first watched episode one, I was like, yes, that's what it is. It's a murder habit. I think the narcotic pull for me is what I think of as the powerful absence that haunts an unsolved crime. 
Murderers lose their power the moment we know them. We see their unkempt shirts, the uncertain fear tightening their faces as they're led into a courtroom. When I'm puzzling over the details of an unsolved crime, I'm like a rat in a maze given a task. And I mean that in the best possible way. The world narrows, the search propels. I felt in the truest sense of the word, gripped. I had a murder habit and it was bad. I would feed it for the rest of my life. The thing that's so special about Michelle McNamara, and I think a lot of the true crime people out there, is she really puts the humanity into it. You know, like mm-hmm. the way she wrote. Well, I guess let's get in. Let's let's start from the beginning. It's a very good place to start. <laughs> it's a very good place to start. So we yes. open on Michelle McNamara making calls, and she's amazing. And then the theme song. Oh my God, Avern, I had to look it up. So the theme song is called Avalanche. It's a Leonard Cohen song, but it's co- covered by Amy Mann, who is I just love her so much. It's so haunting. Well, I stepped into an avalanche. It covered up my soul. When I am not this hunchback that you see, I sleep beneath the golden hill. I was like, oh my God, what am I about to watch here? Yes. And I love all the imagery. You know, there's something interesting about now living in California. Yes. And knowing I've always been fascinated by serial killers and like the most prolific serial killers. A lot of them existed in the state of California, specifically, I think, Northern California up into the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Not that there haven't been serial killers everywhere. One of the most famous serial killers is from Kansas, where I grew up. You know, really? Yeah, BTK was from, I believe, Wichita, um, or like, you know, that general area. So they're everywhere. That's not exclusive, but there does seem to be a connection to the state of California. But there's something also in this documentary about the imagery of California with like the palm trees and the creepy song. And it just for me, I just like I got full chills where I was like, oh, this is, you know, and what's cool is so what Michelle McNamara ends up becoming. She covers all kinds of crimes. She became an incredibly popular true crime blogger. She had a podcast and then eventually um, a very famous article in LA Magazine in 2013, which led to her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. But she actually renamed this guy. Right. So the, the Golden State Killer is ultimately who we're going to be talking about that she was after. She was determined that she could figure out who it was. And he was never called that until Michelle McNamara called him that. Right. He was he was called um, Eron's, the East Area Rapist slash Original Night Stalker, which just feels like far too goofy a sounding name for such a horrific criminal like Eron's. Part of me kind of likes that, like call him the douchiest name of all time. Just to yeah. be like, you suck, dude. You're Eron's. Yeah. Icky but, guy. But Golden State well- Killer. That's I think I love that. And there's a pr- purpose for that, actually, because they needed to. Well, we'll get to it. But um, so we start with Patton Oswald. And so Patton Oswald is a famous comedian who was on like King of Queens. He played like the 
sidekick neighbor back in the day. And he's also a stand-up, and he's super funny. I'm sure his kid just loves him because he plays voices on a ton of cartoons. Also, just side note, he replaced in Secret Life of Pets. Uh, Secret Life of Pets 1 was... Um, Louis C.K. Thank you, who like jerked off in front of girls. By the way, it's okay to like a comedian. You don't have to have sex with them. Mm-hmm. Screw you, Louis C.K. I really used to like Me you, but too. I have no respect Man, for you. Me too. Man, it sucks. Anyways, in the second Secret Life of Pets 2, Patton Oswald took over for the uh, character, the lead character. And honestly, I think he's a better voiceover actor anyways. So anyways, super famous guy. He's married to Michelle McNamara. And this is where I am like obsessed because you guys all know that Vanya likes the romantic shit. And I actually, it's more like, I just like the hopefulness and love, like in love, whatever. Anyways, we see he's talking about, he's actually signing autographs of the book because they didn't really say it. And I'm sure they'll reveal more. I know on as the episodes go on, but like he helped finish the book with a couple other people. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I feel like that's, it's important to know that honestly going into this. And I think they kind of write out the gate by showing that he's signing it, that Michelle McNamara actually passed away before her book was finished. I mean, it was all of it was there. It just hadn't been completely finished. Yeah. Like finished, edited, put together. So her husband and then um, a couple of her friends who we meet in this documentary, I I believe Billy Jensen is one of them and Paul Haynes is another. They were true crime writers, citizen detectives that she met, that she really kind of leaned on and became really good friends with through her investigation. They all came together and helped finish her book for her, which then was released pretty much right around the time they actually caught the motherfucker. So... Oh my God, this is amazing. So he's talking about, as he's signing these autographs, he's talking... um, He's saying, you know, it's after she passed and he's just depressed as shit. And he's at his parents' house in Virginia. And while his daughter is visiting with his grandparents, her her grandparents, his parents, he's down in the basement reading through her book and trying to get it finished, you know, trying to help, whatever. And he said there were moments where he would just want to run upstairs and tell her something just because it felt like he was talking to her as he's reading her writing. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how it was very dark times, but like how... How cool is that? That I mean, how sad, yes, that she's put gone. But like, how cool is it that you could, you know, get a piece of her mind, like kind of join her for a minute if you read any of her writings, any of her blogs. You know, her daughter's still very young, but maybe when she's older, she can kind of visit her mom in a different way. I just think she'll definitely have a library of, you know, yes, she they'll wait till she's older because it all does cover crimey stuff. But I could not recommend more. I have read lots of posts and continue to go back to and read truecrimediary.com. Uh, she's a great writer. Truecrimediary.com. Okay. True Crime Diary. That's her blog. And uh, it's awesome. So I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already, if you're a true yes. cram, true cram, a true crime fan. <laughs> um, so she had been basically writing you know, about her fascination, her murder habit, so to speak, for a really long yeah. time, but talks about how she was watching one of those shows. And they do the beautiful, wonderful Amy Ryan does um, voiceover. So she reads the writing for Michelle since Michelle can't read the writing. Right. Um, right. So whenever it's not really Michelle in a clip or a recording that she's made of herself, it's Amy Ryan doing, I think, a wonderful job of reading Michelle's words. But She talks about how she was at home watching like a Forensic Files or a Dateline or one of the many shows that we all binge when we love true crime. And Mm -hmm. they covered this East Area Rapist original Night Stalker. And this is a girl 
or a woman much like myself who feels like she's heard of all of it. And she was shocked that somebody who had committed over 50 rapes and at least 10 murders, she had never heard of this person. She was not familiar with the story. So she hops immediately on the internet and she starts looking into it. And she stumbles upon this book called Sudden Terror that was written by Larry Crompton, who happened to be a former police officer who worked in Sacramento and tried to catch this guy but never could. And that, she says, is where her obsession was aborn. And she just became completely determined that this was a solvable case. It's crazy because they show the guy, Larry Crofton, mm-hmm. and he's obviously an older gentleman now, um, but he's, de- you know, he's bummed. He's l- like very sad that he couldn't solve the case because he said when he would go into these crime scenes, he said the feeling, the hair on the back of his neck would steer, s- just stand up because the fear that was in the victims and what they described, he felt like this person was a true madman. And this wasn't like anything that they had ever dealt with before. And it's in Sacramento, which I think is very interesting, Avrin, mm-hmm. because so we just recently went on a semi-socially distant. Well, Avrin and I are whatever you guys know, we're we're in it to win it together yeah. all the time. But we so we went on a camping trip up up uh, near Sacramento. And so we mm-hmm. drove through all those these like so you uh and actually, um, sorry, Michelle McNamara also talks about the diff, like going from L.A. driving to Sacramento where, you know, L.A. is so congested. And, and then as you get to Sacramento, everything like sort of levels out. Mm-hmm. And it's this like it's a cow town. town. It's a cow town. That's what they said. And then like back in the day, it used to be so innocent. But like in the 70s, everything kind of changed. It became the state capital. Mm-hmm. They they got an Air Force base there. So it was a growing city. But it used to be a place where people kept their doors unlocked all the time. And it was just a simpler time. Absolutely. And the Larry Crompton definitely also says, you know, the Sacramento lost its innocence because mm. of Iran's. Um, because they it was. Yeah, it was. A growing town, but it was still a place where people felt safe enough to not lock their doors, to let their kids ride their bikes around the neighborhood without worrying about also just the 70s in general, general I think, yeah, was that's a true. more innocent time. That's true. But um, I guess let's get into some of the specifics of yeah. why Michelle believed that this was somebody that could be caught. Because the way that he committed these rapes and then murders, he transitioned later on into also murder, was really... Mm fucking creepy, but also so specific that she became convinced that there was a way with this evidence to figure out who this guy was. So one of the things that this monster would do is it didn't always have to be a woman home alone. It didn't matter to to Iran's or Golden State Killer if there was a husband there, if there was a child there. Um, one of the things that would happen is, so say it was a sleeping couple, they would awake to like a flashlight in their face, the silhouette of a masked man who would throw, you know, like shoelaces, ripped up dish towels, whatever stuff from their own homes, mm-hmm. force the wife to tie up her husband, tell them if they made a sound, he would kill them. Then he would like leave and rummage around and he'd come back into the bedroom with a bunch of dishes from their kitchen. And he would place these dishes on the back of the husband and say, if I hear one of these dishes move, rustle, jingle together, I will, I will kill your wife. And yeah. that was the, the way that he wielded power over 
they're, you know, they were outnumbering him. But it was like, if I hear this move, I will just instantly kill your wife. And so these husbands would just have to lay there tied up with these dishes on their backs. And that's like pretty unique. You know, that's like a unique trait. That's not something that's commonly done. I feel like most um, sexual predators really do try to find people who are alone. Yeah. You know, and this like this guy didn't give a, a, a shit if if there were people right. in the house. He figured out a way to control the situation. That's so insane. The common thing that he would do was he would always wear a mask, always wore gloves, and he would speak through clenched teeth. There was no way to know who he was, and he was clearly very familiar with the homes. And another thing that they kind of allude to is that he had probably actually been inside these houses before <gasps> he ever committed the attacks because he would do things like pull ligatures, so like ropes, um, dish oh. towels, things from underneath their couch cushions that he had preemptively put there. Ew. So they could have been sitting watching TV on that couch for weeks and underneath was a ligature that this guy would eventually use to tie them up. It's all very terrifying. So like when I have to admit, I didn't know what ligature meant when I saw heard that I was like, and I didn't look it up. But thank you. So a ligature is is something you can use to tie somebody up. So if you ever are watching or reading about murder, and they say there are ligature marks, that means like, maybe their arms were tied up or like we just did the that story about Gloria, whose son used the belt. And that was the ligature yeah. on her neck that they were referring to. That's so sad. So anyway, she is determined. They are determined that this guy must be caught. Who Someone who had committed so many horrific crimes and who had such a specific um, MO, I guess, modus yeah. operandi, like that there was mm-hmm. no way they couldn't figure out who this was. And so she yeah. becomes completely obsessed. Should we go back to kind of like how she discovered that she was good at this stuff yeah um yes let's do it i just one thing that one little tidbit i got from that little section that i kind of thought was interesting because it's something that i actually was thinking about is michelle asks the detective were the victims relieved that they were still alive and they well the ones that lived they said yes because did you really truly believe you were going to die the whole time yes and so when you didn't of course you're relieved um, and that just goes to show, like, how truly horrific of a, of a predator this man was and how it was shocking that people didn't really know about him. So Michelle, as we mentioned, does uh, a true crime blog and also podcast. And she gets really, really into, at, in 2007, in Jenner, California, she starts hearing stories about couples who are out camping, like being shot in the head. And she's convinced that there's like a serial killer doing these things because it's like there's no motive there's no reason for it but it's always a couple that had been camping being shot in the head so she decides that she's going to actually drive out to where like the most recent victims had been shot and i think it was called like fishhead beach or oh yeah something like that and she videotapes it and she is kind of shocked at one how difficult it is to get down to the beach so that strikes her. She's paying attention to like everything around her. And this is when Michelle realizes that if she's going to really talk about these crimes and more importantly, maybe help solve them, that she can't just click links on the internet for information. She has to actually go where the crimes happened. She has to look around. She has to use this very inquisitive investigative mind that she has. And she has to see the places and it really does help her. And then the thing that really made her realize like, that she had a knack for this is there was a kidnapping. A boy named um, Ben, I think it's Ornby, 
was kidnapped in the Midwest. And Michelle remembered watching several years earlier another story about the kidnapping of a boy named Sean Hornbeck. And she thought, man, it seems like really, really uh, similar. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if the same person who kidnapped Sean Hornbeck also kidnapped Ben um, Ownby. And three days before Ben is found, she posts on her blog that she thinks it's the same person. Police get a tip about where Ben Ownby might be being held. They knock on the door and who answers? But Sean Hornbeck, who is now four years older than when he had been kidnapped. Oh, my God. And both boys were in this house. And so she she had figured it out. I mean, she she didn't give the tip, but she figured out that they were linked before anybody else did. And so that's when she's like, I... I have a knack for this. I have a passion for it. And now she knows about this case and she's like, we're going to catch this guy. Yeah, that's what Patton Oswalt said is that ulti- Michelle ultim- ultimately wanted to help solve and get especially this guy caught. Her cause, as she says, was that she felt like she was born to be a web sooth- sleuth, a, a mm-hmm. truth seeker. And I I just love that because before it was all just online and her writing and stuff like that. But now... Right, because she's, she's got a knack for it. She's got a knack for it. So, I mean, I just right? love her. I, love I do her too. Lot. It makes me want to like solve cold cases. Yeah. Like, I think and you I could feel do like, it. I mean, maybe we'll make that a new aspect of our podcast, Vaughn. Let's pick a cold case. Let's, Let's go to the internets and maybe we pick a place in California so we can also do what Michelle did and like go oh to God. the scenes of the crimes and we will use our, our listening audience and our collective interest and passion and we're going to catch killers. That's right. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be your, sh- your sous chef or your sous web sleuth. Yeah. yeah well, we'll do You'll it You'll be the lead. I'll be the, yes, we'll do it together, but I'm, I'm a little scared. Okay, good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jessica. Oh, and this is when we, you hear like an actual clip of Michelle say she talks about porn addiction being similar to the addiction she had in following cases, like where you lose t- track of time during the day. Mm-hmm. You're just like, you know, obsessed with it. Have you ever had anything that where you lose complete time? I'm sure I have. I've definitely gone, gotten lost on Reddit. Yeah. Like starting with one thing and ending up somewhere very different and being like, how did I get here? And how's three yeah. hours gone by? <laughs> so yes, the internet is the uh, great dark black hole that I think we can all fall into. But I think she was very zeroed in and focused, which is kind of cool. And it's really, Patton even mentions that like when she was starting to get more and more information about this particular case, like her excitement for solving it for believing that it was solvable and that she could help do that was like in it was contagious like he became excited and convinced Mm. that they could solve this and he was really excited for her and like encouraging her and um one of my favorite things is so she's being interviewed in 2011 about um yeah wanting to catch him the victim's um stories being more important than the story of this man, but also that they deserve like the, it's not cool for someone to have done these things to just get away with it. And she's, she's like talking about serial killers and all of a sudden you see her eyes kind of move over and she's like, well, this is awkward. And then her adorable, like two year old comes wandering in Yes, and she's like, so let's just pause the murder talk. And it made me think of you when we record our podcast, when we used to report our podcast together at your house. And any time we would hear a sound, we would like freeze and be like, is a small child about to walk? in and listen to murdery stuff (laughs) and it just made me giggle because it reminded me of you so one of the things that michelle does to start moving forward in her investigation of irons is she is again all over the internet right and she discovers um a cold case message board 
that is like specifically about this. And she says that compared to other message boards that she'd been on about cold cases, the people on this site actually seem genuine and sincere in their desire to catch this man. It's not a lot of like weird conspiracy theory stuff. It's like, what do we know? Here's this information. Here's this. And um, so she gets real into it and she starts reaching out privately to the people that she thinks seem like they're the leaders. And one of those is Paul Haynes, whose handle was the kid who was a citizen detective and spoiler alert a little bit will eventually move to Los Angeles to work as her researcher on her book. Like that's how how tight they get. Yeah. So they start exchanging theories and ideas And then another person on the website is a woman named Melanie Barber, who is a social worker in Sacramento and a citizen detective and somehow was like connected to the court system where in her possession, like she had all of the case files. That seems I was trying to make sense of that, but I guess it's because she was a social worker. But yeah, so she had all like four thousand pages of yes, case and I think files. we'll we'll learn, I think we'll get more background information on her and like how she was connected to it and how she uh, had all those things. And I think in future episodes it'll get okay. more explained. But anyway, so she also reaches out to Melanie because Melanie gets a lot of shit on the message boards because she has information <laughs> and she alludes to having like private police information, but she right. can't share it because she, you can't share that stuff. Um, so she reaches out and she asks if she can come visit. Right. Melanie in Sacramento. And she does. And the two form a quick friendship. And Melanie basically takes Michelle all around Sacramento and kind of shows her the houses, the locations of some of the um, of some of the rapes, like the earliest ones. So the neighborhood where the majority of the rapes took place was uh, Rancho Cordova. So either right in or just right outside of Rancho Cordova, which means to the people investigating this, this Michelle guy. McNamara, Melanie, Paul, that he's probably from that area because yeah. the first ones are there and then most of them are in and around Rancho Cordova, which is a suburb of Sacramento. So the very first rape took place on June 18th in 1976. She takes Michelle to see that house. And then on August 29th of 1976, the third rape took place. And she shows Michelle how close these houses are. Yes. Like they could have, he could have walked from each house from their backyards. Yes. He says there's a fence line that is a straight line. No, no, not even a turn. Yeah. That's like the, the fence line for their backyards. It's a straight line from one house to the next. Yeah. And so that's why she believes that not only was he casing houses before, because he had knowledge of like when people were home when they left what the stories were but then also that like these were houses that were really close together and easy to traverse kind of secretly along this fence line right it's so creepy a neighbor in between had said that he had thought he heard people hopping his fence like i think he said for weeks which is like so apparently apparently the rapist on the third house entered there was a child and they saw a masked man outside her window and she went to go tell her mom. Her mom went to go call the police. But before she could, this person opened the door, which lock your goddamn doors, people. But anyways, uh, apparently this rapist, this guy entered the house with nothing on from the waist down, but wearing a mask. And apparently that was maybe kind of common, too. Like he would enter pantsless. That's just such a weird. But also d- terrifying, tell. right? It also is it indicates immediately to the female who's in the room exactly what this person's plan is, which creates that terror. Oh, yeah. You know, even 
greater, which is crazy. I know. Uh, anyways, now, I just thought. That no, it was is. Just it's a totally creepy. Detail. So Michelle is fully in it. She's going back and forth to um, Sacramento. I also believe she's also reached out to Nancy Miller, who at the time was a deputy editor at LA Magazine. And she's like pitching the story, saying, like, I think that we, if we could get an article in Los Angeles Magazine about this California. Um, basically serial rapist and killer that people don't know about. It'll regenerate interest in the case. And usually that's what's required to solve a cold case, right? right. Like it has to become like pr- public pressure is put back on the police department to solve it. Okay. And so she's telling Nancy the story. Nancy cannot, like she's enthralled. She's enthralled. She tells the story <laughs> yeah. about how she'd been drinking this like 36 gillion ounce uh, Arnold Palmer and she's about to wet her pants, but she just couldn't bring herself to interrupt uh Michelle, because the story was too good and she didn't want her to stop. Ah. So she just like held it until she couldn't hold it anymore. That's hilarious. So just know that that's also why Michelle is kind of going up to Sacramento and going through everything because she's trying to get Los Angeles Magazine right. to let her write an article about it. Right, right. Like you said, Nancy needed it to be like needed her boss to pr- approve it because to make it relevant. Why is it relevant today? Right. Yeah. And so Michelle was really good at, at that by basically being like, this is there are victims who are like citizens of this state who are living all these years later, knowing that this person will never pay for what they did. And it's also so many over 50 rapes. You guys like let that sink in over 50 rapes. I know committed by the same person. Yeah. So the documentary kind of switches gears oh, for a oh, minute. I love and I'm going to let you, I was going to say, I'm going to let Vanya tell this part because this I is love all this so wonderful, I wonderful romantic so stuff. Much. Okay. So I love, I know. And then uh, when this part happened, I was like, this is our series. Avrin, this is our series. Okay. But so Patton Oswald, Michelle McNamara's husband, talks about how they met. I love it. So he was doing a gig at the Largo in LA on Fairfax. And it was, so they had some theme. I don't think it was like your typical stand-up night. There was a theme where a performer would have to jump on stage and talk about a song that they were like, that was their guilty pleasure. And then they would sing the song. And he chose One More Night by Phil Collins. One more night. And then I think I was listening to something else where he's like, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's a good song, people. <laughs> and But in the set before, he's talking about how Irish girls are his kryptonite. And then he does like a little bit where he's like, oh, God, they're my kryptonite. And then he hits his head on the microphone. And so Michelle was there. And apparently she had gone because she had dated some guy who broke up with her for this girl who was performing that night. And she kind of wanted to just see who the person... Isn't that crazy? Anyways, I kind of love, love it. it. Right? So, but anyways, <laughs> after the show, um, Patton Oswalt's at the bar, as you do. And she comes up to him as she's walking out and says, Irish girl is nice. Anyway, so she walks out and he's like completely stunned. She's gorgeous. He's like, holy shit. He kind of talks to his buddy for a minute and... He's like, and his buddy's like, well, what are you doing? Go. And so he jumps up, chases her out of the bar and he yells, hey. And then she was just like, you know, because he jokes that like, that's the first thing he ever said to her. He screamed, hey, at her. And he's like completely a doofus. He's like, I'm not I'm not going to play any fucking games. I need your name and number so I can take you on a date this week. Are you free? <laughs> and she said, she yells, yeah. It's just so cute. I just I love him acting it out. He's like, Hey. 
Yeah. Like, you know, it was kind of terrifying in a way, but also totally. amazing. But he's like, don't yeah. leave. Hold on. When you're compelled by another person like that, that's right up my alley. I love it. So their first date, they go to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And I guess in the summers, which we have not experienced yet because I've either been pregnant or now we're in a pandemic, um, they play movies at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in the summers. And so anyways, they see this Italian sci-fi film. It's like called The 10th Victim or something like that. But anyways, it was not the greatest film, but they had a great time and they loved so many of the same things. He calls her in the middle of the night one night saying, hey, I'm watching Creature, Creature from the Black Lagoon. She's like, me too. And so anyways, she, she says that they liked Tales of the Grim and Offbeat and Good Food which is cute. But when they're dating, she didn't totally like the way his comedian friends, and this tells you sort of about her, like the way she is, which I I just, I'm in love with this woman too. She didn't like his how his comedian friends, including him, who seemed, they tell jokes, but never really listened. Right. They just kind of talk at you like jokey, yeah. jokey, 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 but they're not ever really listening. I know. And I'll have to be honest. I mean, I'm in that, I was in that world for a long time and I probably am, you know, I should have done the same thing where you're just trying to constantly like up one person with a funny or Mm -hmm. like show people how creative and funny you are. But I guess the thing that really won her over in the end was this Edward G. Robinson impression, which is like that 1930s gangster slang. It was like, yeah, you see, look here, look at that keister on the hot number. It was it became like a couple's, you know, how you have little inside inside jokes. jokes. Yeah, I love it. From there on, she was like, keep going. And she wouldn't let him go. Yeah, I think she said that she never tired of that G. Robinson impression and she never tired of Patton, which I just thought was so cute. Like up until, you know, the day she died, he could do that voice and make her laugh just like the first time she heard it. And I just thought that was so cute. She knew that she was marrying a famous person. But so she had to go, you know, so she went to all those things, those like, um, you know, the shows, the Emmys, the award shows and stuff like, but just not really her, her speed. And actually when she... Uh, Nancy Miller mm-hmm. talks about when she first met her, um, when, you know, talking about a possible L.A. magazine article is that she, you know, she had clogs on. She had a little crappy backpack on and a flannel and she's just really just d- not pretentious at all. Just Very down to all earth. About, yeah. Uh, yeah. And all about the work and the stuff. So anyways, coming to L.A. as a writer, she w- she was really hoping to be. I don't know. They talk a little bit about the rejection she faced when she first got here, but obviously she overcame that. Right. And I think that's a very common story of most people come to L.A. who everywhere else that they had worked in that field, they had always been pretty successful, which is why they moved to a big city where it's, you know, it's a bigger game. And of course, it's not ever as easy as anyone thinks it is. I know. And she was also truly an introvert, right? Like they talk about how she would right. go to these award shows with him. Like she went to the Oscars, she went to the Grammys, and she right. was always just wearing like a black simple dress. And she used to <laughs> joke with her friends that everyone probably thought that she was his publicist <laughs> because she wasn't like, you know, wearing like a great gown to go as his date, which made me love her. She was an introvert. That stuff didn't interest her. It makes me wish that I had. Uh, free time to read books, more free time. I'm, I'm a, I think, you know, I used to say I'm a hundred percent extrovert, but I think that I'm a mix a little bit because I'm missing alone time so much because sure. since the pandemic hit, there's so no alone time ever. And it's, that's gotta be so interesting, Vaughn, just sidebarring mm-hmm. into the like, yeah. experience because I know for some people, you know, with you, obviously you have two small children, 
it was already hard to have alone time, but at least before yeah. the pandemic, you know, they would leave to school and daycare and you'd have, and yeah. your husband would go to work and you would do your things and like you would have yeah. some time and now you don't have that right. at all. Whereas there are some people who live by themselves. I know. Who I now, should. no, no, I'm not, no one, no experience is better or worse. It's just right, so interesting right. to think that like the pandemic can either feel like all I want is to be alone for a minute or it can be like, I, all I want is to see another person that's not a stranger at a grocery store wearing a mask six feet for me. Like I want to be close to someone and it is cause yeah, I mean, I am only with my husband, but yeah, we are very, we feel fortunate that we're not alone, but I also sometimes I'm like, I really wish that um, you could like go do something so I could do my thing because my husband loves my passion for all of this, but it's not his favorite thing to like have on all the time. And it, I, I do yeah. see it occasionally start to get to him that he's like, wait, another murder show? Like just right on top of the, oh, you just finished one. And I'm like, but I have to finish for the, and he's like, okay, okay. So you go out and sit on the balcony and like close the door and just be like, it's fine. My wife is obsessed with murder. It's fine. I love it. That's, but he is he's so a good support, man. Yeah, he's, he's supportive of my passion, man. but it does not, it's not his passion. Yeah. So it is pretty funny. So that, I just love that so much. Um, <laughs> so, so after they were married four years later, they went, they had a child named Alice in 2009. I just wanted to get that, put a button on their love affair sort of in this yes. little section. Cause she always wanted a kid. And honestly, they show video. That little child is so adorable. And she seemed like such a good mom. She's so cute, their little one. So yeah, that's kind of the, that's, they. I love that they took the time though, because that's going to become yeah. obviously an important part of the story and how he has to finish this book for her and his support and how important it was for her as she was going through all of this, because this is a dark yeah. world to enter into fully and then have to figure out that balance of like stepping out and being present with your two-year-old child and not yeah. exposing them to that. And then also like focusing on your marriage and not just letting it all be about this, but also the support that he gave her. And that he was like, no, pursue this. This is, you're so excited. Like, I want you to go for this. So then we kind of switch back to the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we start meeting some of his victims and some of the other law enforcement, not just the Larry Crompton that were involved. And um, so the police that we meet are Richard Shelby, who is who was a detective at the time, and then Carol Daly, who was a female homicide detective, but after Sacramento realized that they had maybe a serial rapist on their hands, they brought her in, which is something that is, I think, so important in the 70s when rape was not even, we'll get into this. I won't lie, you guys, I've watched a few more than just the first episode. We'll get into like what <laughs> what the crime of rape even was in the 70s, what it what kind of a sentence it carried, what it was classified as. I'm pretty sure it was a misdemeanor. I'm just going to put oh, that out there. And Jesus. that the way that, people talked to victims of rape. It was still very much like blame. Like, what were you wearing? What did you do to make this happen to you? And so the fact that this woman was brought in to work on this case ends up being mm -hmm. something that truly saves a lot of the victims from completely collapsing on themselves because they had a woman to talk to about what she happened. She looked cool. She yeah, had like she such did. a cool look. They show a video of her back in the 70s and my God, her hair was high and fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was well dressed. Glasses. You know, she was cool. I almost, I actually thought if they were going to do a movie about her, Avrin, you should play her. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a heartbeat. I would love to. I would play yeah. her in a second. Yeah. So the first um, interviewed victim, I believe, that we see is Fiona Williams. She was um, Iran's 22nd 
uh, rape victim. And she actually met with Michelle at a hotel in Sacramento. And she said that she'd never really liked to talk about what happened because it was painful for her, obviously. And it was still kind of an open wound because no one was ever caught. But that Michelle was so compassionate and so easy to talk to that she found it really easy to open up and tell her story to Michelle, which I think is just another testament to the way that she approached this. There was nothing exploitative. She was not trying to, you know, tell a extravagant, like, serial killer story, you know, like, let's make this big. It was really she was really good at making people want to open up because it was really clear that her goal was just to solve this mystery, to figure out who this man was and make him pay for what he had done. So Fiona Williams spoke with her, which I thought said a lot. And she was kind of the one that talked about how this was when Eron's came about, this became like the end of innocence in Sacramento. Right. Um, Another thing we learn is that the sheriff's office, because they had no leads, because as Vanya mentioned, wore a mask, Never wore gloves, no DNA, or not that the DNA was a thing, but like no fingerprints, no trace evidence of any kind. So they really wanted to keep this out of the media because they didn't want to create panic. And so the media sort of obliged, but but then they don't catch anyone and time goes by. And then his eighth victim was attacked in her yard, you guys, like didn't even get into her house. That's how brazen he was. And then took her into a neighbor's backyard. So this is all happening out in the open. And there are enough witnesses of something weird, like a masked man, that the media fully catches wind of it, starts printing about it. And now the community, specifically women, are terrified. And on November 4th of 1976, the very first article ever about the East Area Rapist is published. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy because I have mixed feelings about that. I feel like I understand, like, I understand, you know, we've covered a lot of cases where the the police won't give, divulge too much information or they'll divulge a certain amount of information to the media. So it helps. But I feel like if you're protecting your citizens, I mean, they, try and find a way to do it without causing complete chaos. But you, ha- I feel like. But also got to let people know. I was going to say exactly like you don't want to create panic or anything like that. But also if this person is so brazen and just, you know, one rape after the other, but women who are either living alone, it doesn't even matter at this point if you live alone or not, but they have no idea that they should be being extra vigilant, that they should be locking their doors at night, that they should maybe even be like putting bars in their windows, like that there is a predator out there hunting the women of Sacramento and that they need to be vigilant. And so the fact that it takes, you know, if the first one was in June of 76 and the very first time that the East Area Rapist is ever mentioned in the news is in November... Yeah, after there have up. been eight victims like come on you got you got to give them something like i'm with yeah. you there but also you have to give them something uh, and they do say that initially there's like a little bit of a lull in the attacks after the newspaper articles start coming out and so then they think maybe the publicity has like curtailed the rapist from raping because now he's being talked about and so he's gone into hiding but yeah. that is debunked on December 18th, when 15-year-old Chris Pedetri is his 10th victim. And yeah. she was the uh, the youngest at that time, although there was a couple other teenagers that well, were victims Well, they said six well. rapes of the first 10. So six of them were teenagers. Yeah. So this guy was I not think, just targeting adult ladies. No. It was like children. 
teenage girls. And I think at the time, Chris, who was 15, was the youngest victim. And she was supposed to have gone to a dance, but she wasn't feeling well. So she decided to stay home. Her parents had gone out to do something. Her siblings had gone to the dance. And she just put a pizza in the oven and she was playing piano. And she said that she um, she heard a noise. But at 15, she says, you always hear noises when you're home alone. But she mm-hmm. remembers pausing. Like, what was that? I heard something. She continues to play. And then out of nowhere, a man appears at her side holding a neck at her throat and he says if you scream i'll put this knife through your throat and i'll be gone in the dark which is where the title of the book comes from and so it's a horrific story um of the rape of this 15 year old girl who says afterwards you know it was only a few hours but it changed everything she stopped playing piano after that because she couldn't do it without feeling like someone was behind her um she, so this man, like, really yeah, was it just the worst. She said that she went completely numb for most of it. Yeah. I mean, I just, for some reason, that makes me feel a little better. I don't know. Because right. he raped her a lot. like Multiple in mo- times over pl- several hours. Which I don't understand. Like, I guess... I guess I just don't get the, I'm not a rapist, man. So right. I don't really quite And what understand. we do know is that what that rape, especially, I think serial rapists it's not about sex right right? it's about power and fear and so i think the fact that he would rape a victim tell them not to move right and then go do something or other but they had no idea they were blindfolded they never knew if he was gone or not and so they would lie there terrified and then he would inevitably come back several times but eventually he would leave but many of the victims will discuss in future episodes how they would lay there for up to an hour after the last time they were raped because they weren't sure he was gone yet so and so it was really about creating the fear and then the power of right that he that he could wield over them that's what that's what it's about she said that this girl had said that he had moved their uh, th- one of the chairs he was raping her on t- right next to the f- to the fireplace fire fireplace yeah. and she thought that she was going to die and be burnt alive that's she said that was her biggest like right. not her biggest fear but like that was she one of the times she set the be- couch on fire yeah, yeah. where she came out of her right numbness yeah. it's just what a f- what a icky icky what a what an awful person eh. yeah awful so Michelle really, or Nancy really wants this article to go forward, but she's telling Michelle, we got to get just a little bit more, you know, like my, my editor is not, not interested, but we need to like up the ante here. So Michelle goes back to visit Melanie in Sacramento and she's like, listen, LA magazine is interested in doing an article. Is there any way that you would let me take your case files. I swear I'll give them back. I'm not going to make copies of them. I'm just going to take notes off of what I read. And Melanie is very much like, oh, man, like, I'm really not supposed to do that. I definitely am not allowed to like have them taken out of my possession. And she's like, you could sit here and look at them. And Michelle's like, well, how many pages is it? And Melanie says, it's like four to 5,000 pages. (laughs) And you hear Michelle, who's this is she's recording this conversation. You hear her be like, what? And she's like, well, it's, it's the case reports for every single rape that's 50 one through 50 and you guys again just let that number sink in 50 yuck and so eventually because michelle is michelle and she's so earnest and she's just trying to solve this this case she convinces melanie to let her take the case files for 24 hours she goes to a hotel 
She snuggles in. She puts on a bathrobe. She's got a cup full of mini bar gummy bears. She draws the shades and she just starts going through this. And she spends 24 hours going through all of the case files. And one thing that she notices is that drainage ditches and canals behind these homes are common. They come up in the police reports a lot. So now she is convinced that police also believe that that is how he was casing the homes. He was like hanging out in the drainage ditches behind houses. And that's where he would watch them from. And that's how he would figure it out. And it's also kind of how some of these houses connected to each other. And then she said that what she became most convinced of was that he was playing a game with the people in these neighborhoods. Because as we mentioned before, like houses one and three, how close together they were. That's a pattern. If you look in the documentary, there's like a map where it's like it was here and here. And so many of them, they're like little pairs, right? So it's like one here and then one practically on top of it. So like same Mm -hmm. street. And she said that he thought, she thought that maybe his whole head game was you might not think that you have anything in common with your neighbor, but you do me. And that that was like part of the fun for him. And then the episode ends with an email from Nancy saying, LA Magazine is a go. The project's been greenlit. Cut to credits. Yes. And it's directed by Liz Garbus, produced by Elizabeth Wolf and Kate Berry. And it was just so, I was so happy to see ladies' names just coming up first. All ladies. And it was... It's so good, you guys, and I hope you enjoyed this. I also, of course, recommend watching it if you yes. can. Yes. Um, I need to immediately get I'll Be Gone in the Dark because I want to read the book. I haven't read the book. Me too. And I think part of why this feels special, because so many times, you know, like a true crime book or a true crime story will be turned into a docuseries just because it's maybe an easier way to absorb the whole story start to finish than reading a a book. Mm -hmm. But I think what makes this kind of set apart and special is that it's not just about the book, right? Otherwise, you could just read the book and get all the same information. But it's the story about the woman who wrote the book and what that journey was like, what that what that, you know, did to her, to her family, to her friends, for her, for her family, for her friends. And ultimately. Um, and ultimately for the victims. Yep. Of catching the, the killer. Yeah. Or of the Golden State the Killer. Rapist, yeah. And the, and the killer, because he will. That's why he's called the Golden State Killer. I know. He will graduate, as a lot of serial predators do, from rape to murder at some point. And we'll cover that, obviously. Eek. Um but I'm so excited to go on Michelle's journey with her. Yeah, That's too. what I think makes this feel different is it's like I'm mostly excited to watch her solve this crime. Yes. And I love her and I'm obsessed with her. Hey, guys, thank you so much for listening to this first episode of our coverage of I'll Be Gone in the Dark for our Patreon listeners. If you are interested in more, go to patreon.com slash romcrime. That's R-O-M-C-R-I-M-E. And become a member to enjoy bonus episodes monthly, as well as behind the scenes and more. Thank you for your support, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>